It is Ryan here, and I have a question for you. What do you do when you win? Like, are you a fist pumper? A woohooer, a hand clapper, a high fiver. I kind of like the high five, but if you want to hone in on those winning moves, check out Chumba Casino. At chumbacasino.com, choose from hundreds of social casino style games for your chance to redeem serious cash prizes. There are new game releases weekly, plus free daily bonuses. So don't wait. Start having the most fun ever at chumbacasino.com. No purchase necessary. DTW, void, were prohibited by law. See terms and conditions 18. Plus. Hey everybody, Patrick Connor here and welcome back to the Knuckles and Gloves podcast. It's been a minute. I'm here with my boy Bryn Jonathan Butler, who's of course author, filmmaker, my bro for a long time now. How's it going, man? It's going good. Just getting coming out of a stomach bug. So this was a nice way to help the recovery. I mean, yeah, don't adjust. If you're watching on YouTube, don't adjust your sets. It's me. I shaved off that fucking massive llama that was on my face. It's gone. Nah, it's, it'll come back, I swear. But uh, look, dude, I was sick. I was sick as hell for a bit. I got like, like a cold twice, and then I got COVID. I was taken out, bro. But we're back. We're all right. We're 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 living. And look, later on this month, I think it's like the 28th or something like that, uh, April 28th, there's a big movie about George Foreman coming out. You know, they're always taking stabs at boxing movies periodically. And this is kind of the, it, it, they come in waves. You know, we got Creed 3 that people are raving about. I, I'm not interested in boxing movies personally, <laughs> with all due respect, but they come oh. in waves, dude. It's like, you know, they come in big chunks. So later on this month, they got a George Foreman movie. And that means that through our divine analysis and reliving of history and rehashing and whatnot, we got to talk about George Foreman's re-winning of the heavyweight championship against Michael Moore. Yeah, I, I can't tell you. I love George Foreman, and I love re-watching his fights early. I love the second career. But it's hard to kind of conjure up how much indifference I have to watching like a fictional movie not a fictional movie but like a recreation of the events like that just sounds terrible i mean if will smith as ali is as bad as that was with michael mann directing it and a really good cast that movie was awful this seems like a hundred times worse but revisiting george and you know i mean it's funny because this is 20 years after the other most important thing that he's involved with losing to ali the only time he was ever knocked out in his entire career um this is a really special one to to sort of back into and i mean the full extent of his second career after he lost all his money and and leaned into preaching and everything um i just didn't understand how many fights he had had like until he fought Evander Holyfield in 1991, from 87 until 1990, Foreman had 24 straight fights that he won. And, and, and conversely, is Michael Moore, as a light heavyweight, knocked out every opponent that he ever fought. Like, I mean, Michael Moore is another one who is fantastically fun to go back and watch his fights. I mean, his uppercuts alone I think are some of I think he's the best uppercutter I've ever seen as far as a big man throwing. And it's interesting when you look at the physicality of these two guys, because George looks so much bigger, but his reach is only two inches more than more 
in this fight, which plays a big part in the fight. So there, it's it's a fight where there's a feeling of inevitability about it when you look back on it because, oh, George, 45 years old or a month before he's 46, um, this tremendous achievement, one of the great achievements in sports history. And yet you watch the fight and you're like, it's really about Michael Moore that created that much more than George, the way George is conducting himself, taking nothing away from his will and determination and power and all the reasons why we love George. But it's a funny fight just to watch in real time because you know where it's going. But if you didn't know where it's going, you'd be like, exactly like Teddy Atlas, what are you doing, Michael Moore? Stop going to your left into Foreman's you know, wheelhouse. So fun fun fight to look, look back on. And, and the other thing I think that's fun about this is us having an opportunity to look at the way things might have gone with these two guys because you have so many great heavyweights at play in this era. And if this fight had gone differently or a couple of the ones that led up to it for both guys, boy, the landscape of the heavyweights could have gone in so many different directions. You know, it, it's it's especially funny, I think, when you go back and you watch, like, uh, for instance, they have it on YouTube. They got the fight, and then they have the entire HBO program on YouTube. Um, and the entire program's good to watch because they talk in the lead-in. Uh, Jim Lampley specifically says, you know, it speaks to the lack of star power in today's heavyweight division, and you're like... Yeah, what are you talking? What the fuck are you talking about? Come on, Jim. <laughs> and it well, and especially in hindsight, and you know, knowing what we know about the heavyweight division now, so it's uh, and and in the wake of a lot of those those fighters from that time leaving, retiring, getting beaten to retirement, whatever, um, you know, it, it's it's almost it's it's just a wild, uh, you know, to to consider, but in any case, uh, yeah, like it's. It, it, it's it's a lot of fun. I think it's the kind of fight that's a lot of fun to look back on. Uh, and like you said, you know, with with the hindsight, there's a lot there. But yeah, like it, it, it's it's really tough to know exactly what what the tenor was at the time. It's just it's like we know too much now. Yeah, yeah. No, I mean this this was really set up in a lot of ways. George had the star power. He'd obviously obviously done. He could sell tremendous tickets when he fought Holyfield. Um, when people hear that fight and they look back on it and maybe they look at the scorecards, I don't think it's indicative of what the fight actually was like when you rewatch it. Certainly also, if you talk to Evander Holyfield, I asked, I caught up with Holyfield ooh, maybe seven years ago and had about an hour with him in um, Hollywood, Florida. And Riddick Bowe was there and this was doing a profile on Shannon Briggs who also is going to figure in this story as, as Foreman's last opponent. But Holyfield said far and away, the hardest hitter he ever faced was George. And I mean, think about that guy's career. Look who he fought. And look who his sparring <laughs> partner was with David Tua. And um, it's very telling. Like he, 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 it's kind of one of the only times you see Holyfield gun shy with Foreman at the end of that fight. He's just sort of like, I just need to get out of here without getting knocked out because things are not going great here when this guy hits me. I, I don't like how this feels. And that's exactly what Holyfield said. It never felt the way for, when Foreman hit you, it didn't feel like anybody else. It was the finger in the light socket kind of feeling. And I can't think of anybody else that really unnerved Holyfield, maybe James Tony, but but in terms of punching power, that guy could take a serious punch. And, and I mean, another thing about this fight is, 
the kind of chin that Foreman has, the sort of shots he's taking, having his head snapped back and molded into shapes as it was with Morrison and some of the other beatings that he took in his career where he puts on the sunglasses as soon as the fight's over. Um, <laughs> it's, it's an interesting fight because I think it was yeah. set up to just be a stepping stone for more to have more lucrative fights. And then all of a sudden it goes this weird haywire direction. And unfortunately Tyson Foreman wasn't able to happen as they were trying to really set up. Yeah. You know, you, it's, it's like you were talking about Foreman's inactivity, relative inactivity going into this fight, you know, from whatever 87 to about 91, how many fights he had to Holyfield. And that was kind of what he talked about the entire time. You know, he wanted another shot at the heavyweight title he thought he could do it. Evander Holyfield was small. You know, he could take him on, et cetera. And, he, and there were moments in that fight where he shook Evander Holyfield, especially toward the end of the fight. Holyfield was kind of, you know, uh, rocking and rolling a few times where he was like, fuck this. I'm not standing here with this guy. You know, like, I need to get out of here. And you could you could tell, though, but um, also he laid some wood on Foreman, too, in return. Oh, big time. Big and so, time. It, it became another display of Foreman's toughness, his chin, uh, just how how much of like kind of an Im immovable object he he is in the ring more often than not. Um, but that was his chance. That was his shot at Evander Holyfield. He lost it. You know, he he came a lot closer than it seems like you said on the cards. But it but that was his shot. And then on top of that, like we've done a show. It was a few years ago now about like you know all the shit. Uh, with Trump and main events and everything going into the war clause, <laughs> this yeah. fucking guy going into the fight and it was a big fiasco and everything. And so I think that when you take all of these things together, you know, you got uh, Foreman Ali, which was its own kind of fiasco. And then Foreman and Norton down in Caracas, the Caracas caper, another entire fucking fiasco, Jamaica fiasco, everything, all of these like promotions were fiascos. And I think that that probably was a big reason why I was starting to get to Foreman was that like, all right, he finally in 90 uh, 91 gets this shot again at the heavyweight title comes damn close, but didn't quite get it. And then his activity dropped off, got another shot, uh, you know, got the crap kicked out of him against Alex Stewart and finally, and uh, you know, won the fight, but was disfigured, wound up, uh, you know, dishing out everything he could against Tommy Morrison, but couldn't quite get Tommy Morrison. And when people were like, dude, if you can't get Tommy Morrison, I think it's done, George. I think you're, you're good, buddy. And then, so that was, uh, I think a lot of people just wrote, wrote him off at that point. He would, there was, there was no more, you know, George Foreman had already been, it was already a myth. And they were even talking early in the fight, early against Moore. Like, you know, I think the myth of George Foreman's power has been, dispelled tonight and shit like that and it's like uh, yeah 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 especially in hindsight bro you guys are saying some really dumb shit but you could now see though like going into this michael moore unbeaten uh even though he definitely had a struggle himself against holyfield he won the title and he outworked holyfield for it outmaneuvered him for it and it seemed like all right you know this is like three to one two to one ish odds for for more over foreman that's what a lot of people forget is that like the way that the stage was set was not just that this was some preordained or predestined type of thing for form in the way that I'm sure it's going to be told. Yeah, I think, I think you're absolutely right. And I think the way Foreman has taken over, it's become a myth more than a story. Right. And it's a wonderful myth, like, because Foreman winning this thing, I mean, it's odd now because our attitude, because of 
most likely steroids and the longevity of careers. Yeah, you could also credit it to nutrition's better, training's better and stuff like that, medical advances. But a huge component of it is enhancement of uh, supplements. And at this time, Foreman talks about like 45. I mean, he raises the specter of a death sentence for certainly any athlete, but he's saying across the board in any kind of walk of life, by the time you're 45, you're written off as as useless so it's it's interesting because he's coming up on useless quick yeah no exactly no my 44th is in june but so it's i mean that's another interesting thing as you're thinking about george coming up where they raise just how old he is and and how large he is how his body has changed so dramatically from what he was in the past but as you say they're watching it in real time and dismissing his power and they're doing it despite the fact, as we know, with Holyfield or Morrison. I mean, Morrison is another guy in that fight, brutal fight, where uh, anytime he was taking shots, you could see he was very timid to really engage full, full, like guns blazing at Foreman because of what he was taking back. So the idea that you would dismiss arguably the most dangerous puncher in heavyweight history. And yet you have Gil Clancy do it. You have Merchant doing it. You have Lampley kind of insinuating. Um, like the one thing that nobody should dismiss about who George Foreman is. Um, you know, and, and and the other part of it is the, the thing that they, it's funny, they raise it as if it's kind of sad is his determination and willpower. They make it seem like it's just there to take a beating. But in the end, I mean, you can see the way it trampled on so many people that were in front of him is, as Customato said, if there's equal skill, it's a battle of will. And with Foreman, there is just it's it's not just that he has this puncher's chance. It's that it's a matter of time until I lower the boom is a feeling that you see so many people begin to accept when they're in the ring with him of, oh, my God, I don't ever want to get hit with that again. And I think we saw it with Deontay Wilder. I think I, I thought a lot about De Deontay Wilder and Foreman having a kind of conversation about their abilities because Foreman is probably the worst looking elite heavyweight I've ever seen um, in this phase. Like when you watch his balance and how he's punching, you would never teach anybody to do anything that Foreman's doing. Like I mean, that's the only way I can describe it. And in the same way, I think he's probably more coordinated and has more of a game plan than Wilder ever did, like fighting Tyson Fury. But it, it is interesting just to think both of them have that big willpower and tons of guts. But Foreman, I feel like, is just more as if he... he it's, it's like that line from, from Million Dollar Baby. The, if there's magic in boxing, it's the ability to, to believe in a dream that only you can see. Foreman, I completely believe saw this ahead of himself, even if everybody dismissed it. Now, maybe a thousand people who believe in that same thing are going nowhere, but he found the, I mean, what it teaches you is in life, the amount of at-bats you get at the thing you're trying to hit a home run at is kind of the key factor about get closing that gap. And he happened to find an opponent where everybody is telling that opponent, stop, 
giving him this opportunity to land his right hand. That's the only thing he can land. And you're like, eh, fuck it. And you just do it over and over and over and over again. And then finally it fucking lands and the lights are out. And off he goes into the rest of his life and the hundreds of millions of dollars for the Foreman Grill and fame and Hall of Fame and all that kind of stuff. But I mean, the other part of me is like George Foreman as a commentator is probably the worst commentator I've ever listened to as far as information and maybe the most compelling commentator as far as a charismatic presence. (laughs) (laughs) I love George. Absolute goofball, but makes no sense. Makes no sense ever, ever. Yeah, just a a hilarious dude to listen to. But just if you're talking about like tactical advice, don't listen to him. Don't listen to him. himself continually. So yeah. It, yeah, he's had some pretty memorably either bad or like unfortunate calls and stuff like that. But you know, uh as as far as the the Moore fight, dude, it's it's really did seem like a perfect storm for uh at least on paper, it seemed like a perfect storm for Foreman to get sent into retirement. One last chance, one last stab. You know, here's here's another guy who's much younger than him, obviously far closer to his physical prime, but also has the style, the kind of like herky-jerky and strange style to really keep George off balance. And I mean, for a while, that's kind of what Moore was doing in this fight. Well, first of all, I got to say one thing, dude. Quick question. William Shatner spoken word or George Foreman's talk singing to open up the program? (laughs) Which one do you want in hell? What is your hell? (laughs) Because they were both just absolutely killing me. Killing me. Yeah, it's a tough. It's a tough one. I mean, I love both of them, but wow! And yeah, they, and they do like a whole segment on Teddy Atlas, and like you know, Teddy Atlas is inseparable from his fighter. You know, it's like the fuck, are you guys. Wow, they're really trying to make Teddy Atlas into something he's not on this program. Oh, they absolutely are. And I mean, I'll tell you a funny anecdote. It's one of the first things I heard when I. I spent a bit of time with Amir Khan because he was a stablemate with Regan Diao for a while. And Amir Khan, briefly, uh, Freddie Roach delegated training duties to Michael Moore. Because here's the thing about Michael Moore, and I think this tells you a little bit about his stubbornness in this fight with Foreman. So Amir Khan comes in training that day at Wildcard in Los Angeles, and Michael Moore goes to him in a gruff way, like probably adopting a very Teddy Atlas kind of way of interaction. And says to him, I want you to go into the dressing room and I want you to shadow box and don't stop until I come in. So Amir is like, uh, okay, like Amir's a world champion at this point, Olymp- you know, former Olympian. Uh, you want me to just shadow box in the dressing room <laughs> for how long? Undetermined? Okay. So he goes into the dressing room and he can hear the the bell announcing every three minutes. And it's just going one after another, after another, after another. And by the eighth round, Michael Moore walks into the dressing room and says, Amir, did you learn something today? And Amir's like, uh, uh, I uh, I learned that you'll just let me shadow box for eight rounds. And Moore (laughs) said, okay, good. I'm glad you learned something and left. And Amir went over to Freddie, who's sitting like holding court in the the corner of the gym, which he still does, and just said, look, I completely respect you, Freddie. I can never ever have that guy near me ever again that guy is so fucking crazy and incompetent please keep him away from me for the rest of my life 
And I told this to some other people, like, does this sound true to you? And they're like, have you talked to Michael Moore before? So I, I, I think Moore winning the championship, like Moore was a very, very weird guy to be heavyweight champion in terms of personality. He, well, he, he, I can't give you like specifics because I'm not like tied into the community like that, but I can say that, you know, he, look at the gyms that he went through, you know, he started out in Kronk. <laughs> yeah. You know, like he's wearing Kronk colors early on in his career and that didn't work, you know, and it, it basically he had kind of jumped from trainer to trainer and had issues after that too, after Teddy Atlas even. I mean, you know, just uh, from kind of a, psych a psychological perspective, uh, a kind of strange dude. Um, maybe know. worse than that too. Maybe worse than strange. Like maybe, because I've heard, I've heard some things. I heard even him and Manny Stewart would like sleep with women in the same room and like, uh, I mean, somehow I I guess I wouldn't be like shocked, but I, I, I've never heard that, but I do know that he's definitely had a lot of different associations in boxing. And generally speaking, that's usually not a good thing. Like when you're like going from like team to team to team to team. So, I mean, yeah, I would definitely say Michael Moore, strange guy for sure. And they even talk about that in the lead up of this fight with Teddy Atlas and that they're kind of two very strange people. And something that I was cracking up at too real quick before we get to the fight was Teddy, one of the first words out of his mouth in his interview was, yeah, cuss BS BS to me a lot. And I was like, what the fuck are you talking about? Yeah. Oh, man. It was just, it just knowing uh, everything we know now, you know, it was just very funny the way that they're talking and shit. But anyway, so early on in this fight, uh, you can tell, though, that there's this push and pull between Michael Moore's corner and what he's doing, where they're like, here's what you need to do even before the fight starts, dude. Get away from his right hand. Just, you know, go to your right take away that angle you're a southpaw like this is just kind of the thing that generally speaking southpaws are taught to do uh obviously doesn't work in every in every situation but he had just immediately starts out doing this shit where he's like crossing over his feet he's going back and forth dipping dodging juking and it's like it is kind of working because it's throwing foreman off balance and he can't really get set and whatnot but even just watching it you're sitting here thinking like how long could he do this like, how long could he move like that? Yeah. Yeah, I mean, his career, because, I mean, even after this fight, like, I was looking at a list of, of where did he go from here? Because it's like he, he gets to Foreman after Evander Holyfield. Tough, tough fight. You know, and Holyfield's willpower, not many can, can meet that kind of level. And, and yet Michael Moore just kicked his ass. Like, Michael Moore was sort of like Riddick Bowe in Holyfield, for Holyfield, unfortunately, he catches both these guys when they're at their absolute peak of, of conditioning and motivation to fight Holyfield. They're pissed off at Holyfield. They want to show him up. And especially Moore, like you can see, like Moore is auditioning to have a place in his own life in a way that he feels like. Oh, he yeah. Has he was like trash talking during the fight. Oh, yeah. And yeah. just raising his arms. You can feel like if I can overcome this, maybe I can overcome all of this insecurity I've had my entire life. And so it's this it, tremendous vindication for him. And then all of a sudden you walk into George Foreman and you think, yeah, I'm going to take out this legend like from a different generation. I'll just wipe the floor with him. And this happens where suddenly kind of like Tyson with Buster Douglas, 
this guy forever <laughs> has bragging rights over you forever and it's like what were you thinking and that's not just watching the, the great fight and form and saying, oh, I was setting him up for it the whole time. But anybody watches this fight, it's like, this was one of the worst strategies I've ever seen. And it has nothing to do with his corner. His corner was calling this from round one. Don't do this. Here's what he's trying to do. Avoid this. And it's not because Atlas is a genius either. But I mean, he goes from here. And I mean, pretty quickly, it's like Axel Schultz, Franz Botha. Fights Holyfield again, loses, takes a pretty bad beating against Holyfield, keeps going against David Tua in 2002, gets knocked down in 30 seconds. Um, Freddie Roach told me that is the only fight he's ever regretted showing up in the corner of one of his fighters because he knew that Michael Moore was not in condition and was just kind of like, Moore was like, fuck it, let's just do it anyway. And it's just what, like, it's uh... too dangerous. What fight was it? It it might have been the fight right before that, the Robert Davis fight. In it, but it was either the fight before that, or one of those leading up to it was on ESPN. And we'll get back to the fight in a sec. But it, yeah. but Teddy Atlas was on the call, and Teddy Atlas humiliated him after the fight, dude. Like he, they're like going to the interview, and he wins the fight, and he's like, you know, you look bad, right? You know, you you didn't do the right thing. You know, he's like talking, he, dude. I'm serious. If this, I haven't looked for it, but if it's on YouTube, it's worth looking up because it's classic Teddy Atlas, like belittling father fucking syndrome. Like just, and he, he does it like, uh, you know, th throughout, throughout his training career, he does it to Michael Moore. He does it to other fighters too. Like he's, you know, he's trained a number of fighters, but he takes this stance where he's going to like just talk down to them like they're just some small little child that he wants to make feel absolutely this big and and but that's what he did after he gets the win during the post fight interview it's like oh my god give the guy his fucking moment but it, yeah dude it uh and then that was going into the Tua fight and so then he gets absolutely obliterated and Tua lands like a good shot but not even like a devastating shot and he was like it was like a frightening knockout, like a, oh my God, is he okay? Type of knockout. Yeah. Anyway, dude, it it's, it, it, there's so much like in the hindsight of everything that's happened since then, it's just like, it really does make it a fascinating uh, clash. Yeah. And, and, you know, like even in the first round when this fight begins, I mean, it's one of the weirdest things about this fight is it's like two thirds of Moore's approach is a really intelligent, um, poised, disciplined approach to fighting Foreman. And one third of it is the worst decision in the world. Which is yeah, what I find so weird movement, about it. The angles, good. Use the movement and angles, but he's totally flat-footed. Like he's completely flat-footed for a reason that I don't really understand. I have no idea why he's moving to to his, like, to move to your power hands direction. And, and even though Moore is a southpaw, he is right-handed, so he has a lot more kind of zip on that shot, like with his jabs, than most people. Like he, even without kind of leaning into it to get more body weight behind it, like it's not easy to snap Foreman's head back. Foreman is tremendously strong, and yet you see more doing it throughout the entire fight at will. Like anything that's hitting is snapping Foreman's head back because he's just got so much pop on it. So it turns into this, they keep talking about it, the, the commentators, that's a fencing match because the two guys are just standing basically right in front of each other. Even as they're maneuvering, 
they keep the same position like it, it wouldn't like it's almost like why bother moving if this is the only way you're going to fight anyway <laughs> is you're you're looking for an opportunity to counter off of something whether it be you're getting hit in the face i mean both of these guys are landing at a very high percentage there's one round where they're like at 60 and 70 percent landing <laughs> against each other but in the first round like uh you you see more hooking off the jab very effectively but he's gaining tremendous confidence rightfully with with how effective he is with his jab as we mentioned before the two inches difference in reach foreman has the advantage is completely overcome by the timing of Moore, and Moore is very game in this fight however i suspect his training was not as good he's eight pounds heavier than he was against holyfield when he won the championship I don't see any reason why he gained that weight beyond just not training as discipline. Um, even after the first round, you see swelling on Foreman's face almost immediately. And, and you also see the seeds of how this will end in the first round, where Foreman is landing his right cross, maybe one out of every six tries, but it's sort of like an old slugger just waiting for his pitch and he is swinging for the fence every time it comes down the plate he is just he like babe ruth last series of at bats and it's the way that he throws it's so funny too because so you know funny. it's not it's kind of like you're taught to kind of cock you know your right hand yep. and and get and drive it and the way that he does it is almost like this effortless just like uh he's not even really changing his position he's just going you know, like no, it's just he, like this whipping right boom. Like he's he's reaching across the table. Like, are, can I have the salt, please? And just reaching for <laughs> yeah. it. You know, and can I have like a Chinese restaurant? It's so deliberate, but it's just like, God, don't be in front of it. And but the HBO, the commentators did notice it even in the first round. You know, toward maybe I think it was like maybe thirty seconds left. He lands a right hand, and they're like, okay, okay, you know. Or you know, more can't be in front of too many of those, but they're at least acknowledging like it's there. Yeah, and I think I think part of the thing about watching this, you know, it's weird because if you're somebody who's been to a lot of fights live, one of the things that I know a lot of people have remarked to me, and and I agree with it now, and it's an, it's a shitty thing to say, is it's a way more comprehensive way to watch the fight is on TV than live. You're going to miss a lot live. And I think this accounts That's for true. the discrepancy of, of judges. And when you're watching at home, you're like, what were they watching? Well, if you were fixed into one point of where, where to watch something versus what all the cameras are doing in slow motion replays and different perspectives and that sort of thing. So I think with Foreman, to appreciate the impact of the shots that he lands, you need the slow motion and you need to see the target being struck. Because if you don't, it's very easy to be misled, like, ah, oh, something landed or it kind of grazed across like that. But there's just the weight and power behind his fist is just so unusual. I mean, I think like, as I brought up before, in terms of Deontay Wilder as a, as a corollary with him, Wilder, it's like, it's really clear when he lands anything, because it's just, it, it's coming from such a distance where he's closing this distance, this huge kind of. Yeah, like, it's kind of exaggerated. Firing. Yeah. Yeah, it's like the scorpions from Game of Thrones trying to kill the dragon. It's just you feel flinging at you sort of thing. Foreman, it's not like he doesn't need that. I mean, a lot of his big shots are, are arm shots. And his arm shots are like a guy's full body weight turning into a shot. 
Um, I don't know why Foreman has this inhuman strength. I mean, his biceps must be like 21 inches oh, or something. fucking massive. They're just massive. Fucking massive. Yeah. Like, I mean, it's, it's insane. Like the, his physique, I mean, even though it doesn't look like it's a little soft, but you, you're kind of aware the muscle is not far under that softness and in a way that is just not comparable to other heavyweights. It's just, it's just a different thing that he's got. So it's just a I mean, massive human, you know, he's, yeah, just... and he is like, even I met him when he was 65 at his house. And even there, you're just sort of like, I wouldn't want to get in a fight with this guy. This guy, there's just something about him that, yeah. And he was the nicest person. Really enjoyed talking to him. He's so animated, but uh, he he he's not. You know, some fighters are trying to be tough because they came from a place that was really scary. George is not trying to be tough. George, George, George. There's no. It, we've talked about this stuff. before, you know. But like, yeah. there's a different. You know. You know, there's a, you know, a lot of people talk about like fucking alpha male, alpha males and shit, whatever. You, when somebody knows they're tough, they don't talk about how tough they are. They just know they are. And yeah. that's George Foreman. George Foreman, there is nothing aspirational about his toughness or his willpower or his enjoyment of fighting. And, and I think you see the impact of just, just the, that constellation on his opponents where they're kind of like, oh. I mean, you see it on Ali. You see it on Ali in the first fight that Ali was kind of like, I hit him with everything I could possibly do in the first round and it did nothing. And if I keep doing this, I'm going to run out of gas and he, this guy's going to kill me sort of thing. So he adapted to his credit, but you know, like it, it it's sort of like, I mean, Sugar Ray Leonard meeting Duran in the first fight. You can see like, I don't, I don't have that. I don't have what he represents. I have all these other things, finesse, speed, I can come up with a better strategy, but if it's an all-out fight, like two battleships just opening fire, I'm going to lose. This guy's just coming from a darker place, what he's bringing to bear, and has more determination and willpower than I do. So I need to find some other ways that we need to play my game, not, not his. So, I mean, it's interesting in this fight because I like the combat in the first round of willpower, and then in, in terms of skill, it is entirely Moore's fight to just give away. Yeah. So, so in the first round, he's mainly disciplined. He's hooking off the jab. He's jabbing tremendously effectively. His timing is there. He's active. And at the end of the fight, you see Foreman land this right hand on the chin. Now, it clearly had an effect on Moore. He could clearly feel the punch because we saw what it does later on. It's not like an accumulation of blows took it there. I don't know why it didn't make him think like, I shouldn't keep this game plan of moving toward that. And nonetheless, he does. But I mean, Foreman, like I in my notes, watching him is the least graceful heavyweight champion I've ever seen, except for Deontay Wilder. And still, it's not that he's done anything with his footwork to track more down with that right hand. More is just saying, I want to walk into it. So I gave more really clear first round. And I mean, not to give away the bag with this story, but like I, I could only find one round to give to form in the entire fight and it doesn't come from yeah. until the eighth, but uh, how did you see the first round and, and how'd you score it? Yeah, I scored it the same. I thought more uh, was just, and, and it becomes a theme, but he's outworking, he's out angling and he's doing a lot. Uh, he's spending, a, he's expending a fair amount of energy in trying to work his lead hand uh, throughout the fight. 
the HBO commentators are saying, oh, well, like we're waiting for him to uncork his left, but like he's not really that kind of fighter. Like he he is a southpaw, and yeah, he's got a left hand, but it's his right hand that he's he's you know goes to work with more often than not. And that's mm-hmm. exactly what he did against Foreman. He continued that into the second round except for something that I noticed and that I took note of in early in the second round is number one, obviously we know Foreman is trying to line up his right hand. He's doing that the entire time. Um, And they know it. His corner knows it. Moore's corner knows it. everybody knows it. And the only person who really doesn't seem to give a shit about it is Moore, because one thing that he, that I took note of that he started doing early in the second round, uh, which was just, disastrous and wound up being disastrous later on and is also in terms of training and in terms of learning like dude i don't have a ton of boxing experience but i did that shit as a teen and so you you pick up you know the kind of uh basic rules and things that you're not supposed to do don't cross your feet don't you know don't uh move in the wrong direction and like when you're southpaw versus orthodox that type of shit and another thing that i was taught is don't lean to your right because especially if it's uh, orthodox versus orthodox, you lean to your right, you're putting yourself in line for your opponent's right hand. Like, and then on top of that, if you try to move away from it, you're moving into it. Like it's, that's a cardinal sin you do not commit. And that was something that even as a southpaw, for whatever reason, Moore kept doing it. He kept leaning in, boom, <laughs> leaning directly in. And I'm thinking, oh my God, dude. And Unfortunately for him, between rounds one and two, he didn't really get much useful advice. The only thing Teddy Atlas said to him was like, okay, you you lived through it. You're alive. You see, you're okay. And it's like, God, that's not really sending a lot of fucking confidence to your fighter that, God, you got through one round. Okay, good job. Pat on the back. No, dude, no, give him some tactical advice. But it turns out it wouldn't really have mattered because he was doing the wrong thing all night. But that was when I took note that he was just leaning in a way that was like, the exact perfect wrong thing to do. And he kept doing it. And it was like, you don't need to do that in order to land your jab and your hook. Like, but he kept doing it. Um, But round two, kind of a continuation of the first, except for I thought Foreman actually caught him with a couple more right hands Mm -hmm. because of the way Moore was leaning in and kind of staying a little bit more still. Uh, so I gave that second round to Foreman, but I also noted it was a pretty close round and that, you know, if you give it to Moore, I'm not going to be sad. Yeah, I thought it was a little closer, but I, I, again, I just thought Moore's hand speed was just allowing him to vastly outland Foreman. Foreman is backing up, which just the optics of that, because Foreman is famously always coming forward, sort of, as Ali said, like the mummy, you know, he's coming forward. <laughs> and and yet you're watching him get pummeled off balance i mean he he kind of resembles that like human structure of a punching bag you know yeah, like his, that, his head's kind of getting knocked around and... yeah yeah and i mean his face is moving into a kind of silly putty that's getting molded by all of these vicious jabs that moore is throwing and more just in contrast stylistically just you can see how he's developed a style <laughs> That is just a really skilled style. It because he's dealing with such a big man, it's interesting that one of his greatest weapons as a knockout puncher are these uppercuts he has. Doesn't really throw much in this fight. Like, I mean, doesn't throw more than really a half dozen of them. But I mean, watch it against Burt Cooper. Uh, it, it's so vicious. It's it, he's so effective with it. He throws it in a way that's almost more sneaky than a left hook in terms of 
not seeing the punch coming. Like he just throws it under, he throws it as a counter, he times it when his opponents throw a shot, and there's that little opening. Um, I mean, he's got amazing skills, but he does also have a weird kind of mentality. There's something about this fight that to me resembles, it's almost like a, like a grown man fighting a teenager. And the teenager is constantly trying to prove something over and over and over again. The man is like, yeah, okay, okay. And in this second round, you can see Foreman, as you mentioned, landing a couple kind of chin checks on, on Moore, where this one-two starts coming in toward the end of the round. And as he's doing it, you can see Moore taking the shot. And it's like he almost, there's a masochistic streak in Moore, I think, which is interesting. I think he wants to get hit in order to get angry. He thinks he fights better angry. And you can see a few times he does. He takes a few shots and comes back with a flurry. And Foreman is, is way too off balance and, and too slow to throw flurries with any kind of effectiveness. But Moore's responses to me to whatever effective measures that Foreman employed made me give more of the round, but it was close. And then we move into the third and Moore is warned again about moving into Foreman's right hand. Doesn't in any way dissuade him from doing it. It's really strange. Moore continues to move to his left, more active and confident. And then Foreman mid round lands a one, two, but more again counters with more big shots and especially with a minute left in the round, he has like a really effective flurry. His speed and the snap in his punches is just doing a lot of damage to Foreman where you think like almost anybody else taking these kind of shots would change their game plan or like lose heart to, to just keep coming forward. Not Foreman. Foreman is really determined to land his one, two. He does, but he's taking flurries in response for it. He seems content for that dynamic but I thought this was Moore's best <laughs> round was the third. And you just kind of think if, if this tenor keeps increasing, maybe Foreman is going to lose this fight. Like yeah. how, how could more Foreman be able to take this kind of punishment where this is going to go? I, I think you bring up a really good point too. And the way that you word it is interesting because it's like um, Moore is like lashing out every time that Foreman gets close or every time he lands something that's significant, it's almost like Moore is like, Oh, fuck that. You know, I got to get my get back. And he does, but then you're all, but you're, it's like, you can visibly see that as he's getting that get back, he's expending maybe a little too much energy. He's standing in there maybe a little too long, you know? And it's, and it's like, okay, you know, Foreman's got this look on his face, like, all right, I, I didn't get you on this one, but man, you keep doing that. You keep doing that and you're going to see, but you can't see it pay off yet. Like it's, it's just not there because more it's, it's chipping away. You know, you, you're starting to see Foreman's face is swelling up. Uh, they note, you know, the, the same eye that he had issues with against Axel Schultz, uh, you know, uh, or, or was it Alex Stewart? I think it might have been Alex Stewart. Sorry. Yeah, but uh, you know his eyes and cheeks swelled up real bad in that fight, and they're noting, yeah, it's starting to swell up a little bit, and for good reason because Moore is really whipping some of them shots, dude. You know he's like you said earlier, uh, he's already a pretty good puncher. He's already a pretty clever fighter overall. But then on top of that, he's leaning in and getting extra leverage on his shots. You know. Uh, catching George pulling out and stuff like that. So yeah. it's, 
it's really amplifying his power and it's really amplifying the end of those shots kind of, you know, against Foreman. And so you could see why Foreman's face is starting to swell up. If I think generally speaking, if people got it three Oh more through three rounds, I'm not going to argue too much. You know, I gave Foreman the second, like I said, close round, but, uh, going from round three into round four, it's starting to feel like, all right, we're getting into a pattern. Like you said, like Foreman's kind of fallen into this trap where he's, he's following more around and his, and, and on top of that, they even start notice noting the HBO guys are like, ah, more is almost looking like he thinks he can knock Foreman out. Like if he yeah. really continues the pressure, he can stop this fight. And it's kind of like at this point in the fight, you're thinking, Maybe. I mean, why not? Because Foreman's starting to get thwacked around a bit. No, and, and like we mentioned before, as a light heavyweight, Moore knocked out everybody who was in front of him. Moore, Moore is one of the most dangerous light heavyweights ever and and moves up and is still super effective against Evander Holyfield and against the whole battery of other heavyweights. I mean, he, he's a really dangerous fighter with what he brings to bear. And, and yeah, in the fourth round, I have noted that that so much of the action, they're nowhere, it wouldn't matter what the size of the ring is, because they're right in the middle. Like, the, there's almost no attempt to sort of like ring generalship beyond an imposition of will. <laughs> and Moore is still more active. They're both completely flat-footed. I don't know why Moore is as flat-footed as he is. He is much better balanced than Foreman does, but Foreman looks in complete slow motion. And Moore is just totally reliant on his jab, snapping Foreman's head back, which it's doing consistently. And Foreman is almost pawing more than anything. Foreman, Foreman looks sort of like a bear fight, fighting an animal <laughs> just so much quicker, a lion or something like that. But you just, yeah. it's kind of, I can paw with this hand and club with this hand. And that's sort <laughs> of all I can really do. <laughs> and most of the exchanges that they're having is leading to Foreman backing up. And yeah. it's just an unusual thing to see Foreman backed up. I mean, even against Ron Lyle, they're both kind of coming forward and almost collapsing forward when they get knocked down. Um, they're very rarely backing each other up. But in this, you're seeing Foreman um, kind of contorting. Like the way he's getting beaten is like a tree in a storm or something like that. And it's 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 weird to see. And again, we're we're now reassured watching this stuff because we know where it goes. But if you're watching it in real time, I mean, I don't remember watching this fight live at the time. I was only 15. But the moment the moment I saw it recapped, and I think I tried to preserve not knowing what the ending was or something, you're just like, how can Foreman take this kind of punishment from such a young guy? And the announcers keep sort of laying into that. And I mean, even in the fifth round, Foreman's lack of reflexes and speed are just getting exploited even more by Moore. And Moore is even more willing to trade, more enjoying watching Foreman back up. You can see he's really trying to prove something in this fight and it ends up getting him. I mean, it's not that he's trying to land anything big. He's not greedy. He's very disciplined um, in just being effective. He's just consistently effective. And Foreman is trying to find something at the end of the round and yet more shuts them down and it's just too effective countering. So, I mean, I have it five zip for more. And in terms of punch stats, it's not overwhelming, but it's like 
Foreman is, Foreman is being outthrown by 70 punches at this point. And in terms of, sorry, no, is being outthrown 309 to 261 and more has landed 172 to Foreman's 101 punches. So it's like 56% for more, 39% for, for Foreman. You think landing 56% of punches, all of which are stiff punches by more up to this point is a lot of punishment, a lot of leather for Foreman to take. Yeah, and it's and I noted that in rounds four and five, you could definitely tell that Moore's starting to kind of like pull away. You know that it, in terms of you know on the cards and visibly, he's starting to kind of pull away. He's just using the angles to better effect. Uh, I although I did note that in rounds four and five, <laughs> at the very least, Foreman did start trying something new. He started trying to do to work a two three. Uh, rather than trying to just do one, two, one, two, he's kind of like pawing with his jab, trying to club with his right hand. He was, he was at least trying to make something happen, uh, because Moore's moving a little bit too much on him, keeping him off balance. And so he's starting to kind of reach with his right and, you know, trying to get his left hook in there. It's not working very well, but I did think it was kind of interesting because that was, I do remember, uh, very way back in the basic days of like the amateurs, they would kind of like try to talk and like, all right, you know, your, your brain, your boxing brain isn't quite developed to a point where you're understanding all the punches. So let's try to break it down into like straights and hooks, you know, and if a guy's moving too much on you and you use those lateral hooks, you can kind of contain their movement a little bit, you know, and you could see Foreman trying to do that, trying to keep for more from moving around on him by hooking and trying to, you know, corral him in with the hooks but yeah. it just wasn't working very well because he's too slow he's his reaction's not good enough uh and just through rounds four and five more is just pulling away and that's kind of the pattern here but um foreman in round six i noted that he's actually picked up his jab and started slamming his jab home really nicely in round six uh it's just that you know he he just can't quite sustain anything offensively Foreman can't sustain anything you know he's massive he's strong he's that immovable object but he's got no stamina as far as being able to throw like you said he can't throw flurries he can't you know throw combinations and stuff like that it's pretty much he's relegated to trying to line up one maybe two shots and it works later on obviously but if for the time being it's just the it's exaggerated the way that he's missing yeah, I mean, I, I think you, you and I could try to create a worse jab, sorry, a worse left hook than George Foreman, but we would really have to work at it to create anything worse than like the mechanics of how he throws a left hook. It, it's astounding to see like this guy's had some of the best trainers in the history of boxing working with him. He's got Angelo Dundee. I, I mean, I've worked with a lot of kids on their first boxing lesson. Of all ages, I've worked with a 75-year-old trying to throw a left hook and a six-year-old. I don't think I've seen any of them. When you describe what a left hook is, throw it worse than George Foreman throws <laughs> in this fight. And it's just amazing to see. Like, it's miraculous. But, I mean, in the sixth round, here's my takeaway from it. Moore lands 72% of everything he throws. It hits Foreman in the face. Pretty much. He's not throwing many body shots. Neither of these guys are throwing body shots, but he lands 50 shots on Foreman with that kind of efficiency. 
And yet I still think it was Foreman's best round of the fight because he's committing more to these one twos <laughs> and he's tasting, he tastes a few of a few uppercuts, eats a hook, but you can see like he has his eye on some kind of prize that nobody else can see but him. And it's just drawing him in where he has complete willingness to go out on his shield. Yeah, he's somehow not getting discouraged. No, yeah, that's that's exactly no. right. You see like, a lot of guys, they get hit and they shake their heads or they make a big thing about it. Foreman never does. Foreman never makes a point if you hurt him or hit him or, or try to dissuade him of what he wants to do. All he all of his energy is just coming at you to take you out. And it's an it's an interesting lesson for people that make a big thing. You get showy to try to hide how they're feeling. Foreman Foreman's cards are just on the table the whole time. I'm gonna knock you out. The only way I can do it is with my right hand. I don't really care what the fuck you present to me. I am just going to go through you. Now, what are you gonna yeah. do about it? I actually noted uh, that there were about 30 to 45 seconds of that round that were like really fun, you know, because they stood there and were just bam, 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 you know, just just taking it out on each other, man. Um, I I still thought that Moore won the round, but I noticed I noted close round uh, Foreman dished out some punishment, but he ate a lot of punches. Ate a lot. Yeah. And and moving into the seventh. It transitions back into this war of jabs. Well, as soon as it moves there, Foreman doesn't really have a chance. Not that Foreman has a bad jab. For, Foreman has his own version of a jab, but he's he's not going to out-jab the timing and the hand speed of, of Moore and, and just the technique. Like Moore's technique is a much better jab and, and much better guarded defensively as he's throwing it, except for the fact um that this is the one round in the entire fight where Moore begins to move to his right. <laughs> Finally is thinking, yeah. why don't I move away where I can hit him and he can't hit me? What a novel concept. Yeah. I mean, How that's... I stumble upon this and guess what? It's way more effective offensively and it's way more effective defensively because Foreman has no ability to land anything as he's doing it. And his jab gets better throughout the entire round. It's by far his most dominant round. And what does Moore do to build on this round? Go back to, to making it more competitive. And this is right where, right between the seventh and the eighth is where we hear uh, Larry Merchant say the myth of form power has been exposed. That's going to age well. So <laughs> eighth eighth round um oh more is right back to the old game plan for god knows what reason and foreman lands a huge right hand 45 seconds into the round clear stones more and more gets pissed off he's finally got his motivation i don't know why he's looking for that motivation because he could have just won the fight if he just moved to his right very easily by the way like i think he would have won this every single round by far but i guess that's too easy for him and Moore lands this left-right brutal shot on Foreman mid-round. And Moore again shows whenever he almost accidentally moves to his right, he could be on complete <clears throat> autopilot and dominate this whole thing. Foreman's face is really getting molded by punishment. Um, but because Foreman, I thought, really hurt him, stunned him, landed 
the much more telling shots. This is the only round I would give to Foreman in the entire fight. Nonetheless, close round. Yeah, I, I agree. I gave it to Moore, but again, would not be at all upset if somebody gave it to Foreman because of the fact that he he hurt him early on. Um, but you, on some level, got to like how Moore responded to it. You know, he kind of composed himself for maybe, you know, five, 10 seconds and then just started laying the fucking wood on Foreman as much as he could to get the round back. And yeah. I mean, obviously, we know now in hindsight that that was not that's pride, you know, like that's not, yeah. that's not what you're supposed to be doing. Get back to work, you know, but instead he lashed out. Um, and like I said, I thought that that gave him the round, but it also really laid the groundwork for Foreman to be like, I can get to this guy. Like I, I'm, I'm right there. I'm so close. And you could see uh, Foreman working for it too. You could see that he's the way that he's stepping into his right hand after that. Like he's stepping into it instead of just kind of the do 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 you know shit. He starts really reaching for him. Uh, and so in round nine, I thought uh, Foreman jabbing well. Uh, more obviously still trying to use angles, trying to kind of periodically push Foreman back and you know, that kind of pride type of thing where he's like kind of uh, he wants to bully Foreman back and he wants to kind of make a point. And, you know, in doing so, just like I had said several rounds earlier, in doing so, he's expending a little too much energy standing in there just a little bit too long, dude, just flat footed for too long and at, at the exact wrong spot for too long. But Foreman's still just trying to catch up. You know, he's lining it up. And in round nine, he didn't quite do it, but you could see it's coming close. It's coming close. Well, I wonder if this is because we know the ending. I know, because, I know. Because the other thing to say about this round in nine is if you're looking at the whole arc of the fight, Foreman's activity drops to the, the worst of the entire fight. And Moore is way more active and Foreman kind of looks a bit like Wilder at the end of, of the two, the last two um, Fury fights. There's a look on his face where you're just kind of like he he's still got all the heart, but he he is becoming reduced. Like not again, not a complex fighter <laughs> in terms of his skill set. Like he's tried it all. He's already he's, he's it already all, thrown it out there. But he's becoming awfully basic. And he sort of almost in this round suggests. Maybe my activity's fallen off because I'm moving a bit into survival. Maybe some of the punishment that I've accumulated, I'm I'm feeling it. I'm a little frustrated, <laughs> but I don't I don't quite know how to overcome this guy yet. And as I'm trying, when I'm opening up, he opens up on me. He, he's getting the better of these exchanges or something. I mean, I'm I'm just conjecturing into it. But you, I don't think many people would look at the ninth round and go. Aha, uh -huh, like this is clearly Foreman's plan has come together. Right. Yeah. As he would sort of say after the fact. And I got I've him right up. where I want him. I got <laughs> him right where I want him. Yeah. Nine rounds. <laughs> but, but that ninth buddy. is where like I turn the corner <laughs> and I set him up for this fucking thing. So I mean, 10th round, Atlas says to him before it even starts, when he's touching you, don't stay there move to the side he's looking for that shot to steal the round and to steal crowds gil clancy completely abandons george at this point in the fight um and as foreman is coming on you can see at the beginning of this round there's a look in his eyes that's changed 
what was missing in the ninth round suddenly is back. <laughs> and yeah. he's lost again. And you can see it's testing more because more is saying, whoa, it was supposed to go the other direction. He's supposed to start sliding. Like it's that great line from, from No Country for Old Men, nothing wounded goes down, goes uphill. But Foreman's going uphill and he's looking like he enjoys it. And he's caught this second wind, not just in terms of his energy level, but his motivation. And something has changed. It's not just that one punch comes out of nowhere, out of desperation. It no, you, his body language is different in the 10th round. His body language is different. And so Foreman comes on, the look in his eye is there, the willpower is fastened in this, in this moment. And these wild left hooks miss, and he doesn't seem to care. He's unlike, unlike Wilder who gasses so easily, or Joshua, for example, there's something about Foreman. It's like, yeah, I'll figure it out. You know, if I run out of gas and I get my ass kicked for a round, yeah, you know, I can take it. I've got a great chin. And here it is where it's like everything does come together in terms of his motivation to go for that home run again. And and it's, it switches from that kind of nonchalant, I can take it to now's the time. Now, now is when I'm going to get this fucking guy. And it comes after these like two or three wild left hooks he throws where he, you know, it's, it's like, what's his name from Mike Tyson's punch out, like macho man, where the, the hook is just spinning. You're like a tornado spinning. That's Foreman almost looks like he's going to do a pirouette more than like land the left hook. He misses a couple of them is so far off balance that you hear Gil Clancy say, this is a 45 year old man in a young man's game, but he's completely written off. Yeah, There's Clancy's off the whole fight, dude. <laughs> what the fuck yeah. is talking about the whole fight? And then there's a minute and 10 seconds left. We see, dum, dum, and then one more, and it's completely over. And Jim Lampley is off doing his thing, miraculously not crying as yeah. he calls out it happened. I mean, because, I mean, the guy could open the phone book to like yeah, yellow he's, pages. <laughs> he's got some poetry in his back pocket. He's just waiting to weep over. Guaranteed, dude. It's got some Yates for your ass. Oh, poetry. Yeah. I mean, he could be reading the fine print of Drano and he would break down crying. <laughs> yeah. But but here, here, I mean, it happened and the exuberance of it. Again, I don't believe for a second he was, oh, George Foreman prophesized. He heard from on high. But the moment is electrifying and there is something about Foreman <clears throat> with this shot, with the way Foreman reacts to this is such a shift from who he was winning the championship the first time. Because when you watched him back then, there's no enjoyment to any of it. Like he's got such a dark, sullen, angry energy. And, and I asked him, um, were you ever like Mike Tyson was afraid every time he came to the ring, he's, he's admitted. And I asked Foreman, what about for you? Like you had such poise when you'd go in there, and just knock Joe Frazier's head off, just knock him down again and again and again. Were you ever afraid going out there? And he was kind of like, um, yeah, I was always afraid except one fight. And I was like, which fight? And he said, Muhammad Ali. That was the one where I was kind of like, this guy has absolutely no chance. And yet he said that guy who never wanted to be in the ring in the first half of his career, the second half of his career, it was fun going to the ring. And there's just a look on his face where there's this deliverance of everything that he had to deal with in the aftermath of Ali. 
and everything about becoming the kind of person that he became. And talk to anybody that knows him, meet any of his kids. Like this guy's transformation is extraordinary. And somehow it all comes together in this magical moment against Michael Moore that nobody believed him. It's one of the great, I think, vindications of somebody's willpower that sports has ever offered us when people, when someone's counted out. And again, it's not a lucky, it's not a lucky thing. It's just an opportunity seized. And he found the right casting in somebody like Michael Moore to give him that opportunity to seize it. So he seized it, but it wasn't luck. It wasn't like he had to swing the bat with that intent to get it over the fence. And a thousand other guys in that position would not have swung the bat the way that he did. But he, because of who he is, he did offer that kind of intent to take that moment. So it's it's a it's such a bizarre, awful fight in a lot of ways. Like it's a sloppy fight. And then that moment happens and it's like, well, this is one of the all-time great fights. Well, and that's all it takes, you know. Sometimes that's all it takes to communicate, to speak to people, you know. And yeah. and obviously, uh me being, gosh, I guess I I would have been just shy of 12 at the time um fuck yeah yeah just shy of 12 so i would have been 11 and um you know i i remember it i remember watching it i remember a lot of things about it but you the kind of like the cloud that you remember it in you know the 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 background and everything is so different now knowing what we know and what's happened to both fighters since and everything you know george foreman was goofy at the time like i to me, there was no like heavyweight champion. He was the dude who was running in the fucking commercial, grabbing Big Macs as he's doing his fucking road work. Yeah. You know, there's the construction worker. Here's your shake. You know, and he's like, oh, thanks. You know, he's doing his road work, drinking a shake. You know, to me, it was like that was the and now, obviously, I know that that's far more contrived. There was a lot more advertising, a lot more self-promotion going on. And I understand that now. But at the time, it was just, you know. I couldn't understand the impact and the magnitude of this kind of fight and, uh, you know, what it could potentially mean. And also in the grand scheme of things too, you know, it's easy to kind of just brush away, but dude, he fucking won the, the heavyweight championship 20 years after he, what? That's fucking crazy. Yeah. Just a few days before he was 46 years old. And, that, and does, again, that makes no fucking sense, dude. That doesn't even, even on like, you know, well, yeah, Michael Moore had a weak chin or any of that, even taking all of those things into account, that makes no fucking sense. <laughs> no. And it's not a, you know, it's not a 46 year old, like we said before, the way guys can have so much longer careers now with the shit they're putting into their system and all the legitimate ways of improving. That's not George. Like George was not on any, that body was not on anything. That body was, that was this, this, this victory completely shows you. Yeah. Like George had some tremendous physical assets, no question, but his best asset was his mind. His best asset was his willpower, was his determination, what motivated him, what he was drawn and called to do is, is what offered this victory. This was not just the power he had. It was the, 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 the determination to put up everything on the line in order to get it, to go after it. And, and that's what's so interesting about him is you look at him as this physical phenom as a young man, 
that could just overcome everything as a wrecking ball. But that's not who George was here. George, like, you know, Tyson makes a good point when he says, like, this is not a sport for tough guys. It's for thinking guys. And we forget that because there's so much violence. But in order to navigate the trenches of that violence, you have to make a lot of choices and, and have a lot of perseverance to stay balanced, to sort of deliver that shot when there's that opportunity. And George is one of the most poised people that have ever been in the ring, I think, in terms of his ability to fixate on victory, to fixate on winning, and to convince you that you need to play along with his scheme, that his narrative is dominant to yours, regardless of who you are is irrelevant sort of thing. And I don't know where that comes from. I mean, you, you mentioned before, like George being this cuddly kind of pitch man and stuff like that. He's not like that in person. He's not like, like all his kids call him sir. And it's not scared of George. They love him. But but he's like a military guy more than anything. He's disciplined. He raises dogs like he breeds, I think, greyhounds and stuff like that. And I asked to see his dogs. I said, oh, I'd like to see this party. No, no, they're not perfect. I don't show anything that's not perfect. Oh, okay. Like that's the way he is. He's extremely controlled. And all his charity and stuff like that, he doesn't care if you know about it, but people in his community know about it. So he's he's a very interesting guy. I mean, I've only heard him, I've only heard him when I talked to him, and I wasn't with him for very long at his house, maybe an hour. But I mean, even in interviews, the only thing he seems to really regret is when he ever said anything negative about people early on, anything derogatory against other any other fighters he feels really badly about. But now he just wants to be positive and not in a shitty, phony kind of way, but he's kind of like, what am I doing here with my life? Like, I've had all the things that I wanted. I need to be positive kind of thing. And if you move toward anything negative, he just wants nothing <laughs> to do with it. Well, it's, it's good to hear that, you know, um, there seems to be more reality to what a lot of people feel, you know, about George Foreman now and being the person that he, you know, uh, it, there's kind of that rubber banding with a lot of these big figures um, where it comes to how they're viewed. Muhammad Ali is, of course, a great example just because he's the most prominent example where, you know, he kind of went from hero to villain to hero to villain type of thing where there's a realization every couple of years, like, God, you know, Muhammad Ali said some stuff that was just fucking awful and did some things that were just terrible. And then also it's kind of like that, that is met with, yeah, but you're also having to understand who he turned into when he, in his later years and like, you know, the re his own realization of how awful he was during that time, you know? Yeah. And so you're kind of having to, push and pull between the I'm, I know it's a boring uh conversation but a push and pull in in terms of like the assessment of these characters and trying to understand who they were and whatnot and so you know it, it's good to know that some of these guys that we grew up idolizing that there is a little bit of that there that's okay to idolize you know that it's not it's not all like a lot of these characters are fucking nuts, bro. Cause you gotta be, you gotta be to get in there and keep doing this, but that, you know, there is some small slice there that it's okay to like. Oh, I think there's a lot, a lot to like with Foreman. I think he, I think his, his arc is a really legitimate one to, to be in awe of. He, he came, 
you know, from the fifth ward in Houston, that, that shit is no joke. And he really viewed what Lyndon Johnson offered with the job Corps and stuff like that as a lifeline that saved his life. And, you know, he doesn't like to be political, but he, I think has a tremendous amount of gratitude for, for how his life ended up. And gratitude is a place where that's going to help people. Like, like you're going to be somebody of service. Whereas it's, it's, you know, Floyd Mayweather by contrast, me, 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 um, that that's a different, a different kind of energy where everything's about what do I have, not what have I given or what have I received that I need to give back. And I, Foreman's Foreman is just, it's interesting because there's an aspect to him, which is very, he's as straightforward as a lullaby in a lot of ways as a character, but to create that character, to create a simple character takes a lot of complexity often. You know, it's kind of like Don King. It's like, oh, like, what the fuck is Don King? This whole, you know, only in America and on and on and on. But when you think about it as a form of defense for what he is, you're like, how do you attack it? It's hard, like in America, like how do you attack patriotism? It's really challenging. It's like one of the most sophisticated, and I think we've seen some other people use it as a means of, of um about to see it used in the next couple of days too. But... Yeah, there's about nine fucking helicopters out my door here in, in New York City as somebody prepares to uh, be booked with the local <laughs> DA. But but no, Foreman Foreman is a very interesting character. And I mean, kind of like leaving this, this was supposed to lead to I don't even think. I don't even think it's a matter of speculation. Tyson is about to get out of jail in what, four months after this mm -hmm. fight. This is November, a little more than four months, like six months, six months. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Mm -hmm. um, Tyson's going to get out and make $25 million fighting Peter McNeely. At that time, I think 25 million was the most money other than like what Buster Douglas got to fight Evander Holyfield, maybe. Gosh, I'd, that sounds about right, but something but like that, yeah. But it's up there to fight Peter yeah. McNeely, and who he was supposed to fight was Foreman. Through through the politics of of like the title organizations, the WBA trying to have Foreman fight Tony Tucker and all this bullshit, just to well, know, yeah, because you, you you remember the the cover of the ring, that, yeah. and that, that was a couple of years earlier, but they had been trying to set this up with Tyson and Foreman for. I mean, they oh. wanted this fight, you know. Oh, it would have been gigantic. It would have been it would have been the biggest fight in history in terms of of revenue, and and yet, like, I don't, I can't see Tyson at that point losing to Foreman, because Foreman's just too too goddamn old to fight somebody like Tyson. Still had skills, even if he was shot from who he was before. But I mean, nonetheless, like to see both of those guys in the ring at that point would just be insane. Yeah. And, and the, wild. yeah, just like the, the global interest in that fight. And again, I mean, the idea that Foreman could have been heavyweight champion, that that's how Tyson would regain his championship. It's a crazy narrative of where things could have gone, because, I mean, at that time, like could have fought Riddick Bow. You know, Riddick Bow <laughs> is beating Lennox Lewis. Uh, Evander Holyfield is in play. Um, you, you know, you have a lot of characters, and I think the really unsung person for Foreman to fight at that time, Bobby Chez. 
<laughs> he's there. He's going to fight Holyfield. Yeah, he's just waiting in the wings, you know, having a drink or two. You know, solving a little <laughs> fluid intelligence test here or there. Just yeah, dude. Reasserting his Mensa bona fides. Yeah, dude, he's just chilling. He's got his Mensa towel, everything, he's, you know. Got his Mensa towel. Dude, that's yeah. the that's the market. That's what they give you, you know, the towel. So, <laughs> and the shampoo, the shampoo yeah. bottle. Yeah, and the the sponsorship deal with Mothers Against Drinking Driving. That's right. Oh, Bobby. We don't blame you, Bobby, but somebody will. We don't judge you, Bobby. You but know, we don't judge those that judge some of your worst actions with drinking and driving. To 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 I can't even. It's fucking hilarious to me with like Lampley, one of the, some of the first words out of his mouth on this broadcast is the lack of star power in the heavyweight division. Yeah. And it's like, you know, just, it's just so crazy to me that it's not even like it was even in a lull. Like they should have been able to recognize at the time that all these names are about and Tyson's just about to get out of jail. Like it, that's, it's so wild to me, but that's also one of the reasons why it's such a fun time to talk about like late eighties, early nineties in the heavyweight division there's so much shifting, crazy shit going on, and there's a plethora of characters to draw from. And the best one, Bobby Chez. Yeah, I mean, that's... And I don't even think that's a hot take. He he just has everything. I mean, he's matinee idol, good-looking. <laughs> <laughs> I, mean, I mean, just raw sex appeal. <laughs> it's raw. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, you don't need to be anywhere near as drunk as he was willing to be oh. wheel to appreciate the sex appeal of Bobby Chez. Yeah, dude. Before you know, we even get to his boxing ability as a heavyweight. You know, it's like back in the day when we used to play that game. Like, how many drinks would it take? He just says yes. None. Yes, that's how many drinks <laughs> it take. Yes. Are you buying? Oh. Yeah, no, Getting I don't dark. under any influence to to be in love with Bobby Chez. Jokes are getting dark. Jokes yeah, are getting they're getting real dark. dark. They're getting dark. They're getting dark. This was a this was a fun one though. I mean, this was a fun um again, I mean, as I say, like going back to this era, I mean, you mentioned Lampley saying a lack of star power. It's the second best era of heavyweights ever. It's so crazy. By far. Yeah. And it, you know, it's like, it's like having such a shitty time in high school. Then 20 years later, looking back and being like, that was the best time of my life. Fuck. What the fuck am I doing? Oh, is that just me? Sorry, guys. Yeah. No, I mean, there, there are just, there's so many permutations of how the heavyweights in the 1990s could have gone. Yeah. It's, it's crazy. The moving parts there are pretty wild, dude. Wild, wild. So much money to be made. So many like behind the scenes, the personal lives of guys. And we talked about Abiyabuchi in the past. What would he have done to Foreman? I mean, could you imagine? Oh, I think he annihilated Foreman. I mean, shit, George was still going what his last fight was 97. Yes, yeah, the Briggs yeah. in 97. And that was, you know, months after Abiyabuchi Bird. I mean, yeah. I'm not saying that they didn't quite line up, but they weren't that far off. No, no. So Abiyabuchi. 
You had a great Cuban heavyweight who died in 1994, Roberto Bellato, who was an Olympic champion, who was a fucking, like a bigger Mike Tyson, but very much in that style. Somebody like him had defected. God knows what he would have done. Felix Sabone is still, oh, man, yeah. you know, Sabone, like, and, and, and a slew of great American fighters that are, that are popping at the time, saying nothing of Lennox Lewis, arguably one of the greatest heavyweights ever, um, is unbeatable unless you can land a lucky shot against them so 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 much fodder yeah. there so it's a, it's a real fun era to talk about and that kind of reminds me too before we get going you know uh there's no shortage of uh big fights or big fighters or anything like that for us to talk about rehash rescore but if anybody's got anything that they're really jonesing for us to talk about or get into the background of like i'm i'm always open i'm always open to talk about pretty much whatever so please uh leave a comment or talk to us on twitter instagram whatever it winds up being um because yeah i'm all i'm always open to talk about whatever but dude i i appreciate you uh going back and rescoring rewatching not like it was a tough fight to watch by any means but you know it's it's good for the sake of completeness to to go back and just kind of go through them yeah no absolutely it's it's a fun fight and it um is definitely one of the most unforgettable achievements in heavyweight history for very good reason yep i i would say one last thing before we get out of here i can't talk about this fight and then not mention that Eris and I have talked about this fight before, but Eris has, uh, if we don't, again, I'll have to go back and find where Eris has told the story, his own personal story about finding out that Foreman had won the championship, uh, like an hour after the fact or something like that. It's a great story. But anyway, Bryn, I appreciate you, dude. Much appreciated. Thanks for coming back and making a comeback on the podcast with me and many more to come, bro. Yeah. Super fun. All right, everybody. Thanks so much. If you listened in, we appreciate you. If you did listen in on the podcast side of things, whatever podcast app you listen in on, please uh, go subscribe and leave a rating and or comment. Those are appreciated. If you watched on YouTube, thank you as well. And subscribe there. Leave us a comment, whatever that comment might wind up being. As far as social media goes, while Twitter is like it's working for now, kind of for the time being. We'll see how long that lasts, but my boy Bryn is on Twitter as Brynicio, B-R-I-N-I-C-I-O. I'm there. Patrick Connor is Patrick M. Connor. Uh, the Knuckles and Gloves podcast is also on both Facebook and Instagram, where we are as well. But yeah, go find us there. We'll say hi. Bryn, we'll talk soon, bro. And I'm not paying the $8. If Bobby Chez isn't paying $8 for the blue check, I'm not paying to keep mine. Me neither. I do as Bobby does, always. Always. I mean, Menza, I aspire. Exactly. <laughs> All right, everybody. Hashtag blame body. Later. Yeah. Okay, round two. Name something that's not boring a laundry oh a book club computer solitaire huh ah oh, sorry we were looking for chumba casino that's right chumbacasino.com has over 100 casino style games join today and play for free for your chance to redeem some serious prizes 
Chumba. ChumbaCasino.com. No purchase necessary. Forward, prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details.